Hey, Barry. Hey, Al. Which spell is the corniest? I don't know. What? Maze. It's time for a compelled dual bonus episode. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another Compelled Dual Bonus episode. I'm Al. And I'm Barry. And blah, 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 D&D, blah, blah, podcast. You know what we're about. Barry, roll initiative. Okay, starting things off on a good foot, I see. Nat 20! Natural 20, 23! Okay. Your assailants are going to roll as a group. (laughs) Shut up! (laughs) Also a nat 20. Shut up! But they get zero to initiative. (laughs) And then I'm going to roll for your companions. That's a three. That's a 21. That's a 15. That's a 16, and that's a 17. So as our camera zooms in on a rocky wasteland outside the war-torn city of Omagroth in the land of Asheria, you are going to get a bonus round, and so are all five of the Vildoran scouts jumping out from behind rocks at you. Barry, please describe your character. Morlin Valsine is an Australian elven man in the human equivalent of about his mid-thirties. Six feet tall, strongly built, long silver hair, bright blue eyes with slit pupils, dressed in very fine mage's armor with the royal seal of Australia emblazoned on the breastplate. Is he up first, given all of those roles? Yeah, you got a 23, and your assailants, though they will also be getting this bonus round, only got a 20. So, what are you doing here? I'm gonna need the Volduran scout closest to me to make a dexterity saving throw. DC 18. Well, they get a big fat plus nothing, so we'll see how this goes. Natural 18. Meets it, beats it. Meets it, beats it. I still do some damage, though. This Volduran scout passes the deck save on a fifth-level innervation spell as Morlin looks at all of these people coming out from behind rocks and goes, Ah, damn it. I'm gonna roll 2d8 necrotic damage. 11. And then he whips back around to look over his shoulder and goes, All right, everybody, look alive. And now it's the bonus round for all five of these scouts. Now, luckily, the one you just made an attack on, being the one nearest to you, was also the one nearest to your wife, Adana, so he's going to be going after you and not her. Unluckily, he makes two greatsword attacks as his action. A 16 and a 17, those are both going to hit, huh, bud? 
Well, yeah, because my armor class is 13. Go ahead. 22 slashing damage as the scout runs up on you, holding his big old greatsword, and just goes, Wah! Wah! Ouch! And the second one, with his bonus round, is going to run up on your bodyguard standing next to you, Reese Tormare, and also make two greatsword attacks. Neither of those is going to hit, however. The higher one was a 14. This little dwarven guy with a big greatsword runs up, and Reese dodges, bats him off, and says, Let's go into no man's land, he said. It'll be fine, he said. As they swing on him twice, land glancing blows on the chainmail over his arm. But Reese Tormer is a big dude, and more than that, he is well-trained. He has not moved an inch. Oh yeah, sure, you want to blame me for this? I'm not the one that can see the future! Adana, from your other side, says, I told you this had a 60% chance of something going wrong, Morlin! The third Voldoran scout is also going to run up on Reese, and because the second one is giving him a flank, he's going to roll with advantage on both these attacks. That was a 17 on the die that's going to hit. And the second one, that's just barely a 16 that's also going to hit. 23 damage on Reese. The fourth of these scouts is going to be able to just barely, with his movement, reach Adana and make two attacks on her. Yeah, one of those is going to hit. Um, The other one's a miss, though. Adana takes seven damage as the scout swings at her once, misses, and then swings again and gets her across the arm. And she yells, Motherfucker, son of a bitch, Morlin, I'm divorcing you if we survive this! And the fifth scout, even with full movement, is not gonna get far enough to attack anybody. And then we're back at the top of the initiative. What are you doing? Uh, we're penned in. Um... He is going to grab Adana by the arm and haul her out past this line of Valderan scouts that are encroaching on them. Unfortunately, that means they're both going to take opportunity attacks. But he's just grabbing her and running, moving back as far as he can. As you do that, Adana, feet slipping in the mud, yells, Shit! And Reese, who you have left back behind this line of scouts, yells, your highness, in the way that he does when you're in public and his sense of propriety won't let him call you a dick. And you are both going to take opportunity attacks. Those are both going to hit. The lower one was a 17. So you are going to take 10 damage and Adana is going to take 9 as you drag her out into the open field beyond the scouts. Are you okay? I'm fine. What's the play? I'm working on it. You didn't have a plan. Why am I asking? Of course you didn't have a plan. And then he's going to whip around and cast Finger of Death at one of the scouts that is up on Reese. So I'm going to need that scout to roll me a con save. That's a 16. That does not make it. So that's a total of 72 damage, which is more than enough to kill this scout, I believe. 
Yeah, the scout had 52 hit points. You kill them extremely dead. Okay, cool. So at the start of my next turn, that scout rises as a zombie under my control. All right, you have a zombie now. It is Reese's turn next. He's been your bodyguard your whole life, so he is not shocked but disappointed at this development. Over this zombie's shoulder, he gives you a look and goes, Really? And he's going to go ahead and attack the scout that is still alive that is up on him. So he's going to make two attacks with his great axe. Hey, good on you, buddy. Lower one's a 23. He's going to do 2d12 plus 10 damage. So that's 24 damage to the scout in front of him. And what the hell, he's going to use his action surge. Which is going to let him make two more attacks. Lower one's an 18, which is just barely going to hit. So that's a total of 18 plus 24 is 42 damage. So this scout is still up, but is heavily bloodied as Reese Tormer hefts his great axe and just starts going to town. And that's going to be his turn. So we are back down to all of these scouts. Or rather, four of these scouts, because you have raised one of them as a zombie through the Finger of Death spell. So the first and second one are both up on Reese. The first one is going to use five feet of movement to get into a better position. And they are both going to roll two greatsword attacks on him, both with advantage because they're flanking. First attack. So the first attack from the first scout is not going to hit. The higher roll was a 15. Second one. Also not going to hit. All right. This first scout circles around Reese's back and starts swinging at him, and he artfully dodges out of the way with the grace of a ballet dancer. And he is yelling, You know, I expect a hefty bonus after today. Second scout. Yeah, first attack's gonna hit. Higher roll was a 21, and the second one is also gonna hit. Higher roll's a 22. Okay. And the second one slashes at him for a total of 22 damage. So Reese takes these great sword slashes, goes, and then straightens up, turns back to the scout that he did all that damage on just a second ago, cracks his neck and says, son, that was not your wisest decision. The fourth scout is going to run down and go after your younger sister, Nora. She is an Australian elven woman about the equivalent of 23 years old, wearing bright, shining paladin's armor. She has not seen a lot of combat. This guy goes after her, and she makes a frightened meep noise (laughs) and hefts her sword. Uh, And the scout is going to go ahead and make two greatsword attacks on her. One of those is a miss, it's a 7, but the other one is a 23, which is handily going to hit Nora's AC. So that's 10 damage for Nora. Nora takes this greatsword hit and is not badly injured by it, but it did draw blood. So she yells, Morlin, what do I do? Still holding her sword up. 
Morlin, from where he has pulled Adana back out of the fray, winds up to cast another spell, looks over at his sister, and yells back, Well, I'm no expert on martial combat, Nora, but I think the pointy end of the sword is supposed to go in the bad guy. And this fifth scout is going to, after running 30 feet and doing nothing in the bonus round, run back and run up on you and make two greatsword attacks. Only one of those is going to hit, unbelievably, given your 13 armor class. (laughs) Nine damage. And then it is Alasha's turn. Alasha Dakarin, a willowy Asturian elven woman, looks like 90s Sandra O, wearing a high-collared blouse with tight sleeves under her mage's armor, hair pulled up into a very practical bun, looks around at the scouts facing you all, grimaces, and yells, I'd love some crowd control if anybody wanted to handle that. And she's going to cast a blight on the scout that is up on you and Adana. They're going to make a con save. 17, so that is going to save. So they're going to take half of this 88 damage. And then she's going to go ahead and use Empowered Spell to re-roll some of these. So she rolled 51 damage. Uh, The scout is going to take half of that, which is 25. And then she's going to use Quickened Spell, and she is going to, because she can only cast one spell around, cast Toll the Dead, which is a cantrip, on the scout in front of her that just swung on Reese a minute ago. So that's going to be a whiz save, DC 16. Yeah, that's not going to do it. Because Alasha is level 11 and this scout has already taken damage way back in Moreland's first action, this scout is going to take 3d12 damage. 23 necrotic damage for the scout in front of her. As she lunges forward with all of the almost feline grace that you've come to expect of her. And just reaches her hands out and nails first, clamps them on either side of this guy's head, and grins. And you hear the sound of bells ring out as her nails impact with the scout's head. And then we are down to Adana, your wife of several decades at this point. She is a very small Australian elven woman, light skin, blue undertones, slate gray hair, silver eyes. She surveys the battlefield with a very analytical gaze, as you've come to expect from her, and then says, Oh, this is so stupid. And then she's going to cast a fifth level magic missile on the scout in front of the two of you. So each of those darts is going to do 1d4 plus 1 damage. So let's hope this is a 4. And it was! Hey! So at 5th level, that's 7 darts, so that's 5 damage per dart for 35 damage, which is enough to insta-kill the scout in front of you. So she whips her wand out, points it at the scout in front of you, and you watch as a glimmering tessellation of these silver threads of magic appear in the air behind the scout and spin gently clockwise, and then compact into a glowing spot of light which separates into seven and they all slam into the scout's back and the scout just drops dead in front of you 
I am so in love with you. She grins up at you, brushes her hair out of her face and says, you'd fucking better be. And then it is Eamon Petrus's turn. <laughs> Eamon is about Alasha's age, so the human equivalent of late 20s, early 30s, a few decades younger than you are. He is a very scrawny, very wiry fighter. He is, the word that comes to mind is pointy, and he has just a mop of dark curly hair. He has like one Clark Kent curl coming down over his forehead, which he very carefully puts there himself every morning. He has become a dear friend. He is not good at much. <laughs> he's not bad at anything, but he's not good at much. <laughs> but he's gonna do his best. He sees this one scout up on Nora. Nora is much younger than everyone else in this little scouting party. So he grimaces and then he pulls a throwing knife out of the bandolier across his chest and says, Nora, duck! And then he's going to roll his first attack. That's an 18. That is going to hit. So he does 10 damage on the first one. And then he pulls another knife out and throws it as Nora is ducking away from the first one as it goes whizzing past her ear. And the second attack is also gonna hit. That's a 25. Yeah, man. That's another 10 damage. So he does a total of 20 damage to the scout in front of Nora. So she's gonna try and hit this scout with her longsword. That's 12. She gets plus 9 to hit. That's a 21. So she's going to do 1d8 plus 4 damage for 11, and then she's going to apply a blinding smite. So the scout's going to go ahead and make a con save. <laughs> that's a 2 on the die, that's not going to do it. And then take another 3d8 damage and be blinded. That's another 13 damage, and the scout is blinded. So from this Volder and Scout's perspective, what has happened is a 23-year-old has hit them with a sword and they suddenly went blind. And the Scout is now heavily bloodied as Nora just yells. <laughs> She's just yelling as she swings her sword. In a blind panic, she is just screaming. And she was last in the initiative, so we are back at the top with Morlin. So I'm going to cast a Chill Touch cantrip on the scout that's up on Nora. That's a natural one. Critical failure. No, it's not. Adana's going to use one of her portents. You rolled a nine, plus your modifier. So that would be a 19. That would hit. Yeah, so you cast this Chill Touch. This skeletal hand bursts forth from your palm. And goes after the scout, and you can see it about to miss. And then a strand of silvery magic shoots from nowhere and lassos around it and just tugs it back on course as you watch Adana stretch her hand out and twist it. And that chill touch is going to hit the scout in front of Nora. Morlin blinks rapidly, goes, Addie, you're a gem. Adana says, It's all right, buy me flowers about it later. And that's going to be 17 damage. That is more than enough to kill the scout in front of Nora. And is the zombie that you reanimated with Finger of Death <laughs> going to go? Oh, yes, they are. Let me just roll for that real quick. 
19, that is going to hit the scout that is engaged with Alasha right now. Marlin sends this guy's dead friend after him, and he does four damage. You body slam this guy with the corpse of his friend. Good for you. And then it is Reese's turn. <laughs> he looks over at the zombie distastefully, and then he is going to roll one attack on the scout in front of him. That's a dirty 20. That's absolutely going to hit. So that's going to be 1d12 plus 5 damage. So 11 damage on the scout in front of him, which is enough damage to kill that scout. And then he's going to whirl around and he's going to make an attack on the scout in front of Alasha that just got body slammed by your zombie. And that is not going to hit. He rolled a 14. (laughs) So that scout is still up. This scout yells something in Gnomish. Uh, you don't speak Gnomish, but you can tell it's a curse. And then is going to make two greatsword attacks on Alasha. One of which is going to hit. Adana's going to use her second portent roll to make the one that would have hit a seven. So it doesn't hit then? Nope, it's a twelve. So Adana growls under her breath after this first greatsword hit misses. And you watch the one that this guy is swinging about to hit, and then a thread of silvery energy wraps around the pommel of his sword and yanks it off course. And that's the end of that scout's turn. Alasha is next. She bares her teeth in a huge grin, nods at Adana, and says, Thanks for the save! And then she's going to cast Inflict Wounds on the scout. So let me roll that. Yeah, it's gonna hit. So, Alasha does 3d10 damage to the scout. That's 16. Yep, that's gonna do it. He goes down like a sack of rocks. As he hits the ground, you watch as dying, he turns his face to look toward you, and he looks at something past you, and blood bubbling over his teeth, he smiles. Fully ignoring that, Morlin looks around at all of his party and goes, All right, sound off. Anybody dead? Adana next to you says, No, but I use my most powerful spell for the day, and a lot of my, uh, and she wiggles her fingers and threads of silvery magic wrap around them. Mastery over fate, which is disappointing. Alasha, further down the battlefield, says, I'm feeling hale and hearty, your highness. Nora, still holding her sword, goes, I'm okay. I hate this. Courage, Nora. You did good. Reese, Eamon, you two okay? Reese, wiping blood off of his great axe, says, You're buying me a beer the next time we get a chance to sit down. And Eamon, pulling his knives out of a corpse, says, None of them even got a hit in, sir. All right. All in all, not as bad as it could have been. We need to keep pushing on. We have to get Adana within one mile of the Vuldurin line if we want to have any kind of reliable surveillance, so let's go. Everybody gets their weapons in order and gets ready to start pushing on. You turn around and see something you have never seen before. Morlin turns around, eyes going wide, and says... What the fuck is that? 
very suddenly, jarringly, our narrative lens cuts away from all of this carnage and into something much more tranquil. There is a lone horse-drawn carriage surrounded by several knights on horseback driving down a muddy, rut-filled dirt road towards the city of Omagroth. And our camera zooms in further and further through the window to focus on the two people sitting inside of it. Al, please describe your character. Grand Duke Valor and Valsign is an Australian elven man. He has about shoulder-to-jaw length silver hair, bright blue eyes with slitted pupils. He's very slight, especially in comparison to like his siblings, who tend to be bigger people. But he is significantly shorter than most of the rest of them, which is a source of much consternation since he is the oldest. He is dressed in a very fine embroidered waistcoat. He has the circlet of the Grand Duke on his head and the signet ring that comes with the office on his hand. And he is flipping idly through a book. In the bench seat across the carriage from you, you hear a snort. And if you look up, your wife, Adrielle, is raising an eyebrow at you as she flips over another card in her game of solitaire in a small tray on her lap. She is an Australian elven woman, slightly taller than you, kind of plump, long, dark, curly hair pulled up in a fancy updo, with the circlet of the Grand Duchess around her head. She has very sharp features, a very prominent, aquiline nose, eyes that are such a dark shade of gray that you almost can't see her slitted pupils within them. She grabs another card off the top of her deck, flips it over, and smirks at you. You know if you keep looking constipated like that, it's going to be really bad for the troops' morale, which is the whole reason that they sent you up here. Val flips another page in his book and says, well, I'm not in front of the troops yet, am I, dear? Listen, I'm just looking out for you. I know you've been on a bit of a dry spell, and you're so much more handsome when you smile. Val looks up and smirks at her and says, Ah, yes, and what a fool I'd be to not take the advice of someone with so much experience with men. Which reminds me, uh, your pickings up here are probably going to be rather slimmer than mine, I apologize for that. Adriel, who has been your best friend since both of you were very small children, throws her head back and laughs. Your marriage is based on a mutual understanding of how your separate romantic proclivities tend to work. That is a very overcomplicated way to say that they're in a lavender marriage, Barry. <laughs> An extremely happy lavender marriage, however. She flips over another card in her game of solitaire and kind of raises an eyebrow. Actually, I'm still seeing that librarian that I was talking to last month. Oh, that's lovely. Uh, how is she? Val, don't ask about my relationships. It's weird. What? I can't inquire after the health of the royal mistress. Are people still saying that I'm fucking her, by the way? <laughs> Not anyone who knows us. Shame. I was hoping my mother could be convinced that I was cheating on you with a woman this time. Maybe then I would be spared the lecture on my husbandly duties. Well, dear, you may have drawn your mother's ire 
for withholding your husbandly duties, but you have nothing short of my eternal gratitude. She puts her deck of cards down and reaches across the carriage and grabs your hand and squeezes really tight. You're gonna be great. This is what you do. You're a light in the dark for these people. Just don't think about it so much, okay? Valoran kind of clears his throat and puts his book down and says, <laughs> Well, I can always count on you to cut my ego down and then give me a compliment to soften the blow, Adriel. Thank you. I think you must have missed the memo, Val. That's what having a wife is for. In our case, it certainly seems that way. The carriage rolls onward down this very bumpy road. It is not a comfortable ride. Until you finally pull up into this very raggedy-looking Australian base camp. Go ahead and roll insight before you get out of the carriage, just looking out the window. That's a 23. There is a palpable air of despair and hopelessness in this camp that is not the norm. The tents look ill-kept up. There are way fewer people running back and forth across the big main square of this camp than there should be. And everybody looks exhausted. For the last bastion of Australian hope against the Valdurin incursion, for the last thing that is keeping the city of Omagroth from being overtaken, this looks like a piss-poor excuse that you have just ridden into. Val leans over to Adriel and says, What was that about me being a light in the dark for these people? Adriel's eyebrows pinch together and she frowns. Yeah, well, it seems darker than we thought it would be. Optimism, optimism, we're here for optimism. Straight spines, big smiles, let's do it. She reaches down and grabs your hand and then opens the door of the carriage with her other one. Val's gonna gingerly lower himself out of the carriage. I think he grabs his cane from the bench seat next to him. He's being very careful. I think the weather is wet and it's fucking with his joints, which are not good on his best day. As soon as the two of you pile out of the carriage, you do hear excited chatter start to go back through the camp. People seem pretty pumped that you're here. Your arrival was very carefully not announced, because it was supposed to be a morale boost. Your father, the Archduke, did not explain a lot about the situation that you were going to be riding into before he sent you up here. But you can feel a palpable boost in the atmosphere among these people that their Grand Duke is here and apparently going to do something. But much more noticeable than that, from across this big central square of the camp with all of the tents collected around it, you hear a shriek of absolute joy, followed by a very familiar voice yelling, Val! And you get tackle-hugged before you have the time to really process what's going on. Your sister-in-law, Adana Valsine, is a very small person, even smaller than you. She is all of five feet tall, so she doesn't knock you over, but she does have you locked in a vice-like grip, just clinging to you and laughing. Whoa! He catches her and pats her on the back and says, 
Addie, my delicate constitution, please. He puts one hand on the side of her head and just, like, kisses her temple. She had rushed up on you too fast for you to get a good look at her, but now you see that she is dressed in full mage's armor and pretty bloody. She has blood running down from a shallow cut in her forehead across her cheek, and she's being very tender with the movements of her legs, like she maybe took a hit there. She has looked better in the many years that you have known her, but her smile and her eyes are both bright as she braces both hands on your shoulders and rattles you a little bit. You asshole! Why didn't you tell us that you were coming? You know me, I love a grand entrance. (laughs) Tell you who won't love a grand entrance. (sighs) Please don't tell me he's in a mood. I can't deal with the melodrama today. Adana's facial expression goes very drawn and tight. She tilts her head to the side a little sharply and goes, I mean, given the details of the situation, it seems a little bit unfair to... And then you see him. Your brother is striding across this square, talking to a small attache of other Australian military officers. He looks even bloodier than Adana. He's taken quite a few licks very recently, apparently. Morlin is absorbed in this conversation for another short stretch of time, but then he looks up at you, and you lock eyes. Suddenly, we are in a flashbulb memory inside your own head. You are young in this memory, about like the human equivalent of seven years old, sitting in the grand library in the palace in Velental. You're bent over a book, practicing your spells, doing all of your homework for your lessons, and a few yards away, your mother, the Archduchess, is settled in a wingback chair, leafing absently through a book, a half-empty glass of wine at her side on a table. What spell are you practicing? Dancing lights. You have your wand in your hand, and these beautiful pink and blue and green orbs of light are hovering gently around your head. And from around the side of a bookshelf, you hear, Wow! Your little brother scrambles out from behind this bookshelf. Morlin is the human equivalent of about five years old. Big, wide blue eyes, hair done up in a long braid down his back. And he just runs up to you, skids to his knees, and goes, How are you doing that? Oh, um... Val looks around kind of uncertainly, and then kind of flicks his wand a little bit, and goes, I mean, the motions for every spell are are different, but you just kind of have to focus, and the magic will just, it'll do something. Moreland's eyebrows pinch together, and he frowns. You think I could do that? I don't know. You could try. 
He frowns down at the book you've got open in front of you and looks over a couple of the lines of text and then sits back. He closes his eyes, looks like he's focusing real hard, hands out in front of him in a vague gesture. A kind of weird grayish silver light pulses between them. He opens his eyes long enough to look down, see what's happening, and grins up at you really big. Whoa, good job! <laughs> I'm doing it! Gerana, look! Your baby sister, Gerana, who is a toddler at this point, is kind of wandering aimlessly back between the bookshelves. Your mother is supposed to be watching her and isn't. Morland screws his eyes shut again, concentrates even harder, and a horribly malformed skeletal hand rises out of this silvery gray ball of light between his hands. <laughs> He's still got his eyes shut. He's not seeing what happens. Uh-oh. This skeletal hand starts to reach for your little sister, and Gerana immediately screams and starts crying. Morland's eyes snap open, he sees what's going on, and he goes, Uh-oh! Gerana starts crying even harder, and Morland kind of startles a little bit, and the spell evaporates into thin air in front of him. Val's gonna get up from his chair and dart between the stacks and kind of get down and draw on his level and pull her into a hug, going, It's okay, be quiet, don't tell mom. It's too late. Damn it! From this wingback chair, you hear the sound of a book snapping closed and a very irritated voice going, Kimrel's bones, Morlin, I ask for one second of peace. What have I told you about harassing your little sister? You can still see glimmers of this silvery gray magic dying around his fingertips. And he just looks down at his feet. Sorry, mother. And you are back in this dilapidated Australian military camp, where your brother is staring at you from several yards away, and immediately breaks from his conversation with these other officers, and comes striding over to where you and Adana and Adriel are standing. Your Royal Highness, this is a surprise. Val grins and says, her Majesty the Archduchess thought that an appearance from yours truly would be good for morale. Roll insight again. 24. Morland looks deeply pissed, but not at you. At his sides, you see his hands kind of open and close into fists a couple times, just flexing. And then he purses his lips together into a very thin line and nods to himself. Well, if you're to have an understanding of the current level of morale, perhaps you should go talk with the commander of the forces in this area. That being me. He turns around to Adana, who is kind of nervously standing in the background, and goes, 
Addie, why don't you go show Adriella around and explain to her exactly what we're dealing with here? I need to have a word with my brother. Adana kind of hisses in a breath through her teeth and nods and then grabs Adriel by the forearm and hauls her off towards the mess tent. Morlin gets you by the back of the shoulder and starts piloting you off between these rows of tents. All right, all right, slow down a bit. He leads you to what is perhaps the best appointed tent in this little ramshackle camp. Like, there's actual furniture in here, there's a bed, there's a couple of end tables, there's a big, long, rough-hewn wooden table with a lot of battle maps splayed out across it. He stands back, lets you in, follows you inside, and then immediately starts unbuckling all of this mage's armor that he has on. He is heavily bloodied. You see him roll up the sleeves of the tunic he has under this armor, and he has big cuts across both forearms. Forgive me for pointing out the obvious, brother mine, but you look like shit. (laughs) Nice of you to notice. They have bombs on wheels now, Val. Well, not bombs. It's not actual artillery. From as far as we can tell, they're shooting out some kind of force magic, but still hurts like a bitch when it hits you, and their scouts have learned the terrain. He leans over into a box on one of the end tables and starts pulling out rolls of bandages and just patching himself up. He should probably go see a cleric, but is electing not to. Huh. You're managing to walk this line where you don't give me any useful information, but you give me just enough to be worrying. Very admirable. Val just kind of sits down and, like, puts his cane up on, like, a trunk or a table or something. Slow down. Actually tell me what's going on. Oh. You want me to tell you what's going on? All right, I'll tell you what's going on. The last line between our forces and Omagroth is teetering on the fucking brink. We are short on bodies and even shorter on talent. That Dakarin kid is the only person on this battlefield that is pulling her weight that I didn't bring here with me. We have no shields. Our abjuration line is a goddamn mess. And I've been riding father for months trying to tell him that we need Talia Shakrana here to whip it into shape. Well, unless you also recommend that she bring her newborn, that's going to be an issue. Orland's facial expression goes into something very close to a sneer, and then he very quickly reins it into a grimace. Oh, she had a baby. Good for her. Anyway, we're getting our asses kicked. We don't have numbers. We don't have support. We don't have any kind of expertise outside of Adana. And you're here to boost morale. And then he grabs you by the shoulder and pulls you into a big, tight hug. And at least as far as I'm concerned, it's working, so let's figure something out. Let's come up with a plan. What are we doing here? Val hugs him back and laughs a little bit and goes, (laughs) Well, I'm, uh... Not one for military tactics, General Valsine. But I brought supplies that aren't just field rations, so that's a start. 
Oh god, you came up from Velatol. Please tell me that you brought decent wine. I have been drinking field ration moonshine for months. Now, Morlin, do you think wine would have been on the supply manifest for a mission to the front line? No. I brought a bottle secretly and stowed it in the carriage. And this is why I love you. <laughs> he claps you on the back and then pauses to squeeze at your shoulder. It really is good to see you. Of course it is. I'm wonderful. Let's go. So, Morlin, your brother leads you out of this tent and back to where the carriage and various carts that he pulled up with are unloading. Your sister-in-law is standing over there with like a clipboard, just checking things off, chatting amicably with uh, the person in charge of supplies for the camp. You notice as the two of you like wander into her line of sight, her eyes just snap to Valoran for a second, and she looks at him very assessingly and then nods and then goes back to what she was doing. Go ahead and roll me just like a quick insight check. 19. Your brother looks pretty tired. He is limping a little bit. You get the feeling that his joints are acting up. It doesn't seem like worse than usual, especially not accounting for the fact that they've probably been on the road since early this morning and probably had a late night last night coming up from the capital. But it definitely seems like he's not going to be hanging out for anything too lively for the rest of the night. From her conversation, Adrielle looks up, makes eye contact with you, raises her eyebrows in a very, you see this shit kind of gesture. And then she reaches up like she's tucking her hair behind her ear, but she points at you and she casts a message cantrip. In your head, she says, just a heads up, he's being slightly more of a stubborn idiot than usual, so watch out for that. Telepathically, Morlin replies, Adriel, I've had too long of a day to encourage him to participate in any shenanigans with me. It'll just be drinks and then bed, trust me. We find ourselves in a flashback from this moment. Morlin, you are about the elven equivalent of eight or nine years old. You are sitting with Adriel on the floor in a hallway in the palace at Valentall. And you can hear just this horrible cough echoing off the walls from the door that you are sitting next to, which leads to your older brother's chambers. Morlin is just sitting there cross-legged with his fists clenched in his lap, and with every cough, he is sharply picking threads out of his tunic, staring very intently at the door. Adriel next to you is undoing and redoing one of her braids for about the fourth time in the last hour, also staring at the door. She just, without looking at you, says... He's going to be fine. Obviously, he's going to be fine. It's... <sighs> and she kind of hunches in on herself as another really loud cough sounds off. 
What if he's not? Again, not looking at you, Adriel says. Don't be stupid. Morlin whips around to glare at her. Don't call me stupid, stupid. Aurid Chakrana's big sister caught this same thing and she died. Aurid Chakrana's big sister didn't have every healer in the country trying to take care of her, stupid. Morlin lifts up a hand, crackling with black void-like magic and kind of glares at her. Call me stupid again. I'll chill touch you. I will. I'll tell your mom if you do. His eyes narrow and his lips press into a very thin line and he slowly clenches his fist and the magic dies away. Speaking of your mom, the door to Valorant's room opens and out bustles the Archduchess. Your mother, Ileana Valsine, cuts a very intimidating figure. She has a pile of dark hair upon her head and the same piercing blue eyes that you, Val, and Gerana have all inherited. She is pulling a strip of fabric off of her face that she was clearly using as a mask and plucking off a set of gloves, just sighing to herself. And then she looks up and she sees you. Her mouth presses into a thin line. She takes a couple steps over to you and just hisses, What are you two doing here? Morlin goes full deer in the headlights. He doesn't say anything. He's just looking at his shoes. Adriel has no such compunctions. From next to you, she says, We just wanted to see how Val was doing, and... Your mother cuts her off with a sharp hand gesture and says, Lady Baylor, I am sure your father would be very disappointed and very worried to know that you are here. She looks at both of you and she says, You have both been told that Valorant is contagious right now. You know better. Her eyes narrow in on you and she says, I expect better. Morlin is still not making eye contact with her. He is still staring down at the floor, but he clenches his jaw very hard so she does not see his lower lip start to wobble and blinks very hard so she can't see him tearing up. Is Val gonna die, mother? She crosses her arms over her chest and her jaw goes very tight for a second. She looks very intently at the wall, and then she looks you up and down, and her lip curls. For Asharia's sake, I hope not. Go down to the baths, you're filthy. I... Yes, sorry, mother. We find ourselves back in the present at this camp that you have been stationed at. Val, walking next to you, stops for a second, coughs, clears his throat, and then nods and reaches up and up and up (laughs) to sling an arm around your shoulders and says, Let's go. Uh, The wine isn't going to drink itself. Drinking, yes. Drinking sounds fantastic. Let's go do that. With the supplies that 
he and Adriel brought up, the camp manages to put on a decent feast. It's the first, like, good hot meal most of the people here have had in a while. At least you, your brother, and both of your respective wives are going to retreat to your tent for this. Are you inviting anyone else? Yeah, I'm going to take everybody that was on that scouting mission. So Reese, Eamon, Alasha. I'm sure Nora invites herself. Oh yeah, there was no keeping Nora out. She absolutely slides into the tent after you. Like, very risky business, just whew. You all settle down for a nice hot meal and some drinks. I think Reese raises a finger and says, Not that I'm not happy to see you, Val, but... How do I put this delicately? Where's my brother? And Valorant, in the middle of a glass of wine, snorts. <laughs> delicately puts the wine glass down on the table, looking sideways at Adriel, and says, My dearest wife bet him ten gold that he wouldn't eat a hot pepper whole. And knowing his gastrointestinal system, I urged him not to do it. But, uh, the old Tormer gambling streak. We left him a horse, and as far as I know, he used that ten gold to purchase some remedies for his situation. He'll be up in a few days. Morlin chokes on the drink he was taking. Reese reaches up and pinches the bridge of his nose and nods to himself and says, Yeah, I... I don't know what I expected. All right. And he chugs a glass of wine and digs into his food. Val grins and says, he sends his love, though. And then he looks at Nora and says, as do Boreas and Jorana. Nora is just picking apart a bread roll and she looks up, snorts and says, do they? Do they send their love? And Val grins and says, Jorana made a vague hand gesture of acknowledgement, and Boreas said to tell you, and I quote, don't die, which is as close as either of them gets, really. Morlin snorts again and grabs for an empty wine glass and fills it up before holding it out to Adana. Addy, you haven't had a drink all night. Kimrel knows you deserve one. Adana looks at the wine glass. Roll me an inside check really quick. <laughs> Nat one, he's drunk. That's a four. Adana kind of raises her eyebrows and then looks over at you and says, Oh, they gave me painkillers in the healing tent. I don't think I should. Uh, thank you, though, darling. And then she says, Actually, I am feeling a bit peaked already. Uh, Adriel, would you take a walk with me really quick? Adriel on her second glass of wine goes, <coughs> uh, Sure thing, Addy. And she gets up, swaying a little bit. Whew, yeah, fresh air. Good, good idea. And she and Adana walk out. Be careful, you two. And then Morlin looks down at this second glass of wine in his hand, shrugs, and holds it out towards Alasha. Dakarin, I think you earned this. That Toll the Dead was masterful. Elasha's face lights up. She takes the glass of wine from you, grinning, and says, Thank you, sir. I do my best. I don't think we ever got around to making formal introductions. Uh, it's my pleasure to introduce my brother, Grand Duke Valoran. Val, leaning back in his chair, says, Morlin, I don't need introductions. My face is on the stamps. 
You self-important jackass. Anyway, this is Alasha Dakarin, and as previously stated, she is the only person on this battlefield that didn't come here with me that is pulling her fucking weight anymore. You should have seen her out there today. She was fantastic. Roll insight again. Fourteen. Alasha's cheeks go a little bit blue, and she downs the entire wine glass that you have handed to her. Oh, it was, uh, <laughs> it was nothing, really, just using the gifts that Kimrel gave me, as we all are. <laughs> she reaches back to tuck her hair behind her ear and just goes, <laughs> and then you watch her just kind of stare at the table for a second, <laughs> looking haunted. And she says, I could also do with some fresh air. I need to leave. And she stands up and just hurries out. Val kind of looks after her and goes, does she always act like that? No, she never acts like that. That was weird. She's acting weird. But after the day we've had, that's excusable anyway. Moreland chugs the rest of his glass of wine and then slams the glass down on the table. <sighs> all right, hate to sound like an irritable barkeep, but you all don't have to go home, but you can't stay here. I need to go to bed. The rest of you should. We've got a big day tomorrow. Do what you will. Just don't do it in my tent. Everybody starts to file out. Val puts a hand on his chest, very scandalized, and says, Well, I'd love to know where you think I'm going to go. This isn't really my scene. As soon as everybody else that had the potential to judge him left the tent, Moreland picked up the rest of the bottle of wine and started drinking straight out of it and slowly puts it down, and looks over at his brother. Oh no. Acres upon acres of traumatized, handsome, strong young men with pent-up aggression. Whatever will you do, Val? Val stops and raises his eyebrows at you and says, I find your tone hurtful and insulting. But you do make a good point. He gets up, grabs his cane, and does a little two-finger salute to you with his free hand, and says, I'll be going then. Have a great night, little brother. You too, try to be subtle about it. I'm always subtle. And then he walks out of your tent, whistling quietly. Morlin, left alone in the tent, looks at the bottle of wine in his hand, kind of sloshes what's left of it around in the bottom, looks around, shrugs, drains it, and then goes to bed. Valoran, you are not used to being in the same bed as your wife. You have separate chambers back in the palace in Velental, per both of your requests. But in this camp that you have come to visit, you have been given a tent that is pretty similar in accommodation to Morlin and Adana's, in that it has furniture in it, there's a bed, there's a couple end tables, things like that. Adriel was already out taking her trance by the time that you got back from whatever activities you pursued last night. She trances like a goddamn windmill, just splayed out across the mattress, limbs akimbo. 
when you regain consciousness, you are curled up in a very small ball in one corner of the bed, just trying to avoid the worst of the tossing and turning. And outside the tent, you hear the sound of frantic activity, lots of people running back and forth. You get the feeling that you have maybe overtranced a little bit. What do you do? I'm gonna get out of bed, toss a blanket on Adriel, and try to get up and moving, see what I can do. Adriel is still totally out as you get out of bed, throw this blanket over her. She's deep in her trance. You take a peek outside your tent and see a flurry of motion. Many, many soldiers rushing back and forth, fully armored up. They all look like they're getting ready for something big. And from the multitude of dirt paths between these blocks of tents, you see your brother turn a corner. Fully dressed in mage's armor, hair pulled back in a tight ponytail, looks like he's ready to go do something. He catches your eye, nods, and goes like he's going to keep walking past you. Bitch. No, he isn't. Uh... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> um, no, Val's gonna, uh, stop him with his free hand, just grab him by the arm, and, uh, try and fall into step. You know, when one has the Grand Duke of Australia in one's encampment, it seems rather a breach of protocol to not inform him before you go tramping off on some secret intelligence mission. Morlin looks over at you clearly a bit annoyed and raises an eyebrow. Val, I would like you to explain to me, in detail, all of the prerequisites for preemptive action, militarily, right now. You know, the things we were taught when we were children. Can you do it? Not even one. That's what I thought. And I will thank you to let go of me, and let me go do the only thing that I am good at. And we are in a flashback again. Val, you are the equivalent of about 16 years old, standing in the warm, musty, open area of the royal stables. In front of you, your brother is in the middle of saddling up his horse. He's in that weird stage of teenage growth spurt where he seems too big for parts of his body and too small for others, like a puppy growing into its paws. And because of that, it is extremely odd and unsettling to see him in full armor. He finishes getting his horse's saddle secured, reaches down to check the sword holstered at his side, and then looks back up at you. Don't look at me like that. Oh, do tell me, what way am I looking at you? Like you're an insane person? Because that's what I'm thinking, is that you're an insane person, Morlin. Morlin raises an eyebrow at you and then turns back around to make sure that all of his saddlebags are secured. It's really funny how you're implying that any of this was my choice. Mother made a good point. I'll be more use out on the front, so out to the front I go. (laughs) 
you are a child, so where you belong is here, and you said yes before I could argue it, so I'm... I'm equally mad at everyone in this situation. Thank you. Well, like, pauses for a second and coughs into his hand. You can't just ride off alone into... <coughs> God damn it! <sighs> and he just puts his head in his hands. Morlin is already up and in the saddle before you could protest all that much. He looks down at you and raises one hand. In his palm, you see this grayish silver magic convalesce and bloom into an intricately, beautifully formed chill touch spell. It's gotta be good for something, right? You're gonna have to help Boreas and Nora. They're too little. They're not gonna understand. <laughs> you say that like I understand. I... Uh, just don't do this. I'll, I'll talk to Mother. We'll figure something out. Just don't... <laughs> Val, you know better than I do that there is no talking to Mother. And even if there was... If I can do something to stop all of this... If that's what my purpose is, I don't think you should be trying to hold me back. Morlin takes his horse's reins in his hand and snaps them sharply and starts trotting out of the stables. And as he rides away from you, he turns over his shoulder and goes, I'll be back for Autumn Equinox. I love you. And you are standing back outside of your tent in this Australian army encampment with your brother's arm locked in your hand. Valoran nods, clears his throat, says, absolutely, I understand. And then he's going to take his free hand and try to knock Merlin's feet out from under him with his cane. <laughs> <laughs> um, so... I'd say you're proficient with your cane. You've been using it for a little bit. We'll give it the stats of a quarter staff. Why the fuck not? Roll an attack on Morlin, you get plus six. Dirty 20. Yeah, that absolutely hits him. Okay, while he's off balance, I'm gonna tug him back into the tent. <laughs> You whack the back of your brother's knees with your cane, and he buckles. And as he does that, you get him by the back of the armor and yank him back into the tent. Supremely upset, he yells, Oh, you son of a bitch! I tell you not to talk about Mother that way, but you're right. Good morning, Adriel. Adriel, awoken by the commotion, is sitting up in bed, sees Morlin in there, and pulls her dressing gown across her chest with a gasp. Oh! Good morning, dear. Morlin, you saw nothing? Morlin, staring into the void, goes, I wish that were true. Would you mind just holding him there for a second? We need to have a talk, but I- <coughs> <coughs> Shit. I need a moment, first. <clears throat> Adriel casts a hold person on your brother. <laughs> so that's going to be a DC 16 whiz save for Morlin. 
That's a 13. He doesn't do it. Adrielle scoops her wand up from the bedside table, flicks it at him nonchalantly, and goes, You stay right there. Morlin, through gritted teeth, fighting against the paralysis effect of this spell, goes, Oh, fuck, both of you! You always get yourself into these situations, and they could have always been avoided by just having a conversation with your brother, so I don't know what you want in this situation. Uh, and then Val's gonna take his meds, because it's first thing in the fucking morning. <laughs> he rolled out of bed to do this. <laughs> He's gonna step back over, clear his throat, and go, Right, so, let's have a discussion, shall we? Morlin's still in the hold person. He just looks over at Val and goes, A discussion is not what I would like to have with you right now. A fist fight, however. Now, Morlin, don't go making threats. Please think of my delicate constitution. So, let's talk about the details of this. And then he waves his hand vaguely. Scouting mission you're going on. I'm not gonna talk to you inside a whole person spell, you bastard. Are you going to bolt like a scalded cat if Adriel lets you out? That's a gamble you're gonna have to make! Val waves a hand lazily and casts a wall of light, a very thin one, a very small one. Probably two inches thick, exactly as tall as Morlin is, right outside the entrance to the tent. You can let him out. And then turns back to Marlin and says, And if you decide to run, you can explain to everybody why you can't see for the next hour. For a moment, you do see your brother weighing his chances at just bull rushing this wall of light spell. But then he settles himself into a chair and narrows his eyes at you. Fine. You want details? I'm taking my party that I took with me yesterday out. We will be taking increased security measures to stay unseen. And we are going to go find out more information on those new Valduran war machines, because if we don't know our enemy, they will quite literally steamroll us at this point, Val. It's reconnaissance, something we do every day around here, and that I am very experienced with. Do you have any other questions, or can I go do my job? Val cracks his knuckles and sits forward, staples his fingers, and goes full politician mode. Just a few. First of all, what information do we have on these war machines already? Second of all, does this reconnaissance mission need to involve you, or could we send people that are a bit more? And then he looks you up and down. Subtle and less valuable as political prisoners. Three, does this need to happen today, or could we wait until we can do some resource shuffling? And four, are you doing this because it's tactically advantageous, or do you just want to prove that you're a big shot since I came to visit? Moreland glares at you. As for the information we have, these machines are big, they are mobile, they can move over pretty much any sort of terrain. They shot at us, and it was scary and bad. As for whether I need to be involved, if there's going to be any kind of reliable recon done, it's going to need to involve Adana, and therefore is going to need to involve me. As far as if it can wait... Would you prefer that we take care of this problem in the field, or wait for it to roll up on camp? 
And as far as whether or not I'm showboating, if I wanted to show off for your sake, Val, I would kick your ass myself, which I am heavily considering. Can I go? Valoran pinches the bridge of his nose again. <sighs> if you could wait just a little bit, I can get a message to Father and see what backup he can send, what intelligence he can provide from elsewhere, something. Val, you and I both know that the old man is incapable of making any kind of decision without groveling to Mother for approval, and that will take more time than we have. Let me do this. We will be careful. I promise we will all be back for dinner tonight. But we need to know what we're dealing with. I need to know what my people are dealing with. You stay here, write your letters, make your political moves, that's fine. Let me do what I need to do. Let me do what I'm good at. Valoran's mouth pinches into a very thin line. And then he dispels the wall of light. Morlin nods, pulls you into a brief, one-sided hug, and goes, Thank you. I'll see you later. And he leaves the tent. Morlin, you, Alasha, Adana, Nora, Eamon, and Reese all kind of gather up just outside of camp. Adana and Alasha are each going to burn a fourth level spell slot to keep half of you invisible each. Adana is casting invisibility on herself, on you, and on Nora. And Alasha is casting it on herself, on Reese, and on Eamon. And the six of you are heading out. Can you tell me what your marching order looks like? Morlin's going to take point with Adana. Right behind them, kind of fanned out, I think Elasha and Reese are taking flank. And then Eamon and Nora are bringing up the rear. As they move out, Morlin looks back at the rest of them. I'm assuming since they're all invisible, they can all kind of at least see outlines of each other. Alright, nobody get trigger happy the second you try to attack somebody or drop a spell, we're out in the open, and we need to stay as low-key as we can, so just be careful. You all head out across this battlefield. The fields outside of Omagroth are a wasteland. Like, this no-man's land has been hit with so many bombs and so much necrotic magic that it is just blighted and gray for as far as you can see. You are walking for a while, trying to get across. You get just past the point where you were yesterday, and you hear a little click sound that you are horribly familiar with. The Voldurans have been planting landmines in the no-man's land around Omagroth for months. You've seen more than one person get blown up by him. Nobody move. Who is it? From off to your left, Alasha Dakarin, shakily, says, That'd be me, sir. Son of a bitch. 
Moreland pulls his wand out and looks around at everybody else. All right, all of you back up. I've got this. Elasha, don't move. Eamon and Reese back up, very practiced. Adana pulls out her spellbook and goes, Uh, I, I could... I'll figure out something. I need analytics. Adana, what is this looking like? Adana looks up at you and the panic slides off of her face and she goes extremely focused. She puts her spellbook back in her bag and she puts her fingers together and then pulls them apart and you see this cat's cradle of silvery magic wind around her fingers and tangle up in itself as she casts a spell that she has invented called Adana's Analytic Foresight. As she casts this spell, her invisibility drops. You are still invisible and so is Nora. Adana is looking intently into this cat's cradle and she says, what's the question? What's going to happen if we try to defuse the mine? Adana pulls her hands apart slightly, and you watch these strands of magic quiver and tangle up on themselves a little bit more. And Adana hisses through her teeth and says, 50% chance you and Alasha are both killed instantly. Nora only has the materials to cast a revivify once. God damn it. All right, uh, I need another. What happens if we try to mitigate the explosion? Adana casts the spell again. 80% chance you live but are grievously injured. 50% chance Alash is killed instantly. 25% chance that you are both too injured to complete the mission. 10% chance that injuries are minor enough that Nora can heal one of you. I'll take it. Adana, back up. Adana nods grimly, and she backs up. Nora, from behind you, goes, Should I be close so I can do heals? Should I- No, you need to back up too. You're the only chance any of us have of making it out of here alive. Get back. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. And you see Nora's silhouette shimmer backwards. Alasha, still in silhouette, is still standing there. You can see through the, like, heat wave shimmer of her silhouette that she has both of her hands up, kind of clasped behind her head, and that she is looking down at where her foot is resting on a landmine. Morlin's gonna throw off a sacred flame or a minor illusion or something just to drop the invisibility and look over at where he knows Elasha is. Okay, Elasha, look at me. Let's talk this through. Don't move. Elasha, still in silhouette, laughs. laughs. 50% chance I don't make it out of here, your highness. Nobody's fucking dying here today, Elasha, look at me. I'm looking. Do you have anything, abjuratively, anything, a resilient sphere, a shield? Uh, I, I have a shield spell. Okay, here's what you're gonna do. 
you were going to lift up your foot at the same time that you drop a shield spell right under you. It is going to hurt, Ilhasha. It's not going to feel good. But it might keep you from dying, and then I'm going to do something to try to help with that. Do you understand what I'm asking you to do? You hear Alasha take a deep, shaky breath. You watch her silhouette as her hands move down to her sides, and she nods. Cast a shield spell. At the same time as I finish it, I'm going to move my foot off the mine. Exactly. Moreland leans forward a little bit and reaches out a hand for her to grab it. Oh yeah, she latches on. Her hand is trembling, and she just gets you in a vice grip. I'm gonna back up a little bit, but I am not leaving you. Cast the spell. Lift up your foot. I have got you. It does not end here for either of us. You hear a sound that could almost be a sob. And Alasha says, Cast the spell. Lift up my foot. Okay. I can do that. Morlin is going to let go of her hand and very slowly and carefully back up about 25 feet. And I would like to ready an action. Okay. What is your ready action? As soon as Alasha takes her foot off of the landmine, I would like to cast an 8th level life transference. Okay. You ready this action? You can just barely see Alasha's silhouette through the invisibility moving. And then she casts a shield spell, and she becomes visible for a split second. You can see that she has been crying. There are just tears going down her face. Her hair is rumpled where she had her fists in it. And she is looking over at you, wide-eyed, as she throws this spell down and she moves off the landmine and everything dissolves into a fiery explosion. Okay, I don't know how much damage that's going to do on her, but an 8th level life transference spell on my part means that Morlin is going to take 98 necrotic damage that cannot be reduced in any way, but that Alasha is going to get twice that amount back in hit points. So, here we go. I'm going to use Empowered Spell to re-roll five of those. So, Morlin instantaneously takes 52 necrotic damage that cannot be mitigated, but Alasha gets back 104. Okay. Your life transference spell hits Alasha at the same time as she takes the brunt of this landmine explosion. I will tell you, the amount of damage that she was going to take would have been enough to kill her outright. But, with all those hit points back, it is just enough to knock her way, way down. But she is still conscious. The explosion dies down, and Alasha is on the ground by where she was standing. 
and you are aware that she is still conscious because she lets out a scream. Yeah, Morlan's not feeling good after that 52 damage at all, but he's shrugging it off and running up to her. This entire scouting party is converging back on Alasha. As you get closer, you can see that from the foot that she had on the landmine, she has horrible burns just going up the entire side of her body. It's burned a lot of her mage's armor away, and you can see just, like, these bloody, deep burns going up her side. You can see that they're on her face, and she has the hand that has not been burned clutching at her cheek, where a lot of it has been burned away. She lets out another scream as you get closer, and then just dissolves into sobbing. Morlin, who is staggering a bit from all the damage that he just took, kind of goes down to his knees and slides next to her on the ground and scoops her up. I'm going to cast Suggestion. It's a DC 18 whiz save. That's a 17. She doesn't make it. He gets the uninjured side of her face in his hand and holds eye contact with her. Elasha, look at me. It's okay. I know it feels like it hurts right now. It doesn't hurt that bad. You're fine. We're gonna get you back to camp. We're gonna get you a cleric. You're gonna be okay, alright? It doesn't hurt that bad. Alasha, still clutching at her burned face, through gritted teeth, repeats, It doesn't hurt that bad. It it doesn't hurt that bad. It doesn't hurt that bad. It doesn't hurt that bad. And she relaxes. Because she dropped concentration on that invisibility spell, Reese and Eamon are also now visible. They have rushed over and are kind of hovering, unsure of what to do. Morlin, still holding her, whips back around to look at Reese and goes, You two need to get her back to camp now. She can't go on like this. Reese straightens up with the practiced ease of a soldier and a Tormare bodyguard. Right. Got it, your highness. And then he's gonna step forward and grab Alasha from you. As they're stepping away, Nora is gonna go ahead and burn a third level spell slot on a cure wounds. So Alasha's gonna get back 17 hit points, which at least is enough to, like, scab over the worst of the burns. Reese and Eamon holding Alasha, head off. And you, Adana, and Nora are left on this battlefield. Because you have all cast spells, none of you are invisible anymore. Adana is going to go ahead and drop another fourth level invisibility on the three of you. Morlin, you feel like shit after that life transference spell. You can, like, feel your heart pounding, and it is a lot slower and a lot more sluggish than usual. You almost feel like you have a fever, you know, that kind of off-kilter feeling. And as you look down, starting from your wand hand, you can see all of the veins in your hand going up your arm, and they seem very dark. (sighs) All right, we've got to keep going. Everybody, watch where you're putting your fucking feet, please. I can't do that again. Adana 
invisible and right next to you, says, Will do. Let's go. And holds out a hand to you. And Nora, sounding very shaken, says, Yes, sir. Will do, sir. Nora, that's weird, and I have a name. Let's just go find the fucking war machines. And the three of us are going to strike out and try to find these things. You keep walking for a while. You go up a hill, crest over a ridge in this no man's land. And you see a massive Valduran infantry force being led by six of those huge war machines that you saw yesterday. They look almost like beetles. Just huge metal beetles with turrets sticking out of them, rolling slowly over the landscape. Shit, they're moving on the base camp. We've got to do something. You can just barely see Adonis' silhouette well enough to see that she has her hand over her mouth. And she says, What do we do? I don't... What's the plan for this situation? Those machines, I can try to turn them around, but I've got to be closer. How close? Uh, 60 feet. Adana's going to drop concentration on this invisibility spell. She has whipped around to face you, wide-eyed. She looks past you and she says, Nora... Give us some space. And Nora, from behind you, goes, Will do, Adana, ma'am. She hightails it several feet away. Morlin looks over at Adana and kind of raises his eyebrows at her. What would you have me do? We've got to do something. They can't just keep going. Oh, so your response to that is to get down on the same level as the giant guns on wheels? That seems like a good idea. And she's going to cast Adana's Analytic Foresight again. So the actual description of the spell says, Using your insight into the intricate web of time and possibility, you are able to quantify the likelihood of the outcomes of your actions. You can ask the DM about the outcome of an action that you or another creature plan to take within the next 10 minutes. The DM provides statistics relating to the outcomes of this action. For example, there's an 85% chance of a rock slide crushing you to death, a 10% chance of you making it past with significant injuries, and a 5% chance of you making it past unscathed. When and if you take the planned action, the DM rolls a D100 and the outcome correlating to the roll happens. So the question Adana is asking is what is going to happen if you carry on with this course of action and do what you're planning to do? This glimmering silver cat's cradle of magic springs up between her fingers and tangles around them, and she pulls her hands apart viciously, staring into it, and says, There's a 50% chance this kills you. There's a 40% chance that you are horrifically fucked up by it, and there's a 10% chance you get out of it okay. And what do Astraria's chances look like if we let them keep going? Don't waste the magic, I can tell you. They roll in, they decimate. Camp Valoran is there, he dies. 
They take Omagroth. They march down the road to Velental. They take the city within a week because my father doesn't know how to set up adequate fucking defenses. It's over. Everything we fought for, everything all of these people have died for, everything we have ever known is gone, Adana. It has to stop here, and if I die for it, then I'm dead, and it's not my problem. You say all of that, I think you and Adana are inching closer to each other as you talk. So she is up in your face as she hisses back, I'm pregnant. Morlin. Morlin freezes and looks at her slack-jawed. What? Adana's jaw sets very firmly. And she gives you this pinched, upset smile. And she says, Yeah. So tell me again whose problem it is if you die here. He clenches his jaw, looks over at Nora several yards away, and then over at the encroaching Voldaren forces, and then back to Adana. I am coming back. I promise. But if you want our child to know what Astraria is, you will drop an invisibility spell on me right now. Adana just closes her eyes for a second, bites her lip, nods, and then her hand snaps out and she casts invisibility on you. He runs. He vaults down over the ridge. So the range on the spell I am wanting to cast is 60 feet in any direction. Is there any way I can get in the midline of these tanks and have all of them in a 60 foot range? You would have to get very close to the two in the middle. I mean, I'm invisible, so I can do that. Yeah, sure. Morlin vaults over the top of this ridge, runs down, gets right up on the middle two war machines, and forfeiting the invisibility spell that Adana just dropped on him, throws down a mass suggestion spell. I can target 12 creatures that can hear me. Using my Font of Magic ability from my Sorcerer stat block, I am going to burn all but one of my third level spell slots and everything below it to manufacture a lot more sorcery points, and then spend every last one of those sorcery points using Heightened Spell on all 12 of the people within these War Machines to give them disadvantage on their saving throw against the mass suggestion spell that I am about to drop at 7th level. Rule of cool, I will let you do that. So I am going to need you to roll me 12 wisdom saves, DC 18, every single goddamn one of them with disadvantage. That's a 2, that's a failure. That's a 3, that's a failure. That's a five. That's a failure. That's a four. That's a failure. That is another five. 
That's a failure. That is another two. That's a failure. That is another five. That's a failure. That was a natural one. That is a failure. That was an 18. That just makes it. That was a 10. That's a failure. That's another 18. Just makes it. And that's another five. That's a failure. So two of them passed, but Adana has not used her portents yet, and she rolled a four and a 13. So she is going to make those remaining two fail. They all fail their saving throws. Morlin, invisible, runs down this ridge and skids to a halt in the middle of this line of war machines, throws up both hands, wand clutched in one of them, and goes, Fellas, fellas, you're going the wrong way. You should be shooting in the opposite direction. The turrets on these war machines swivel to face their own troops. And the wheels start to laboriously grind into a turn as these war machines start firing on the Volderan forces in front of you. And now I'm going to roll my percentile dice for Adana's analytic foresight. <sighs> Morlin, you've done a lot of damage to yourself already today. You were already feeling kind of off-kilter from that high-level life transference you dropped on Alasha. As you funnel an impossible amount of your own power into this spell to make all of these Vuldurin soldiers and these war machines fail their saves against this mass suggestion, you take five levels of exhaustion. And you feel something warm trickling down your face and you taste salt as a trickle of blood comes out of your nose and goes over your lips. So, your speed is zero. You have disadvantage on everything. And your hit point maximum has been reduced to 49. Time slows to a crawl as you watch one of the Vuldurin soldiers pass these tanks pull up a big fucking heavy-duty, like, essentially missile launcher, which is one of the nastier things that they've invented that you've come across as you've been fighting them. And you watch this soldier's face set firmly. They are right behind one of these tanks. They're gonna take this big missile launcher and fire it at an angle directly at this tank. And I need you to make me a deck save with disadvantage. 12. That's not gonna do it. You watch this missile hit this tank in a very particular spot on the armored hull of it, and you hear an awful grinding, warping metal sound, and this tank crumples and then explodes. 
you had to be within 20 feet of these two tanks in the middle to be able to cast Mass Suggestion. So you are going to take the damage of essentially a modified Meteor Swarm spell. 20d6 force damage as all of the artillery in this tank goes off at once. And then because you failed the deck save, you are going to take another 20d6 as the shrapnel of this tank comes at you in bludgeoning damage. This debris from this tank comes at you first. Just this sheet of metal armor smacks into you. It knocks you back quite a ways. You feel ribs cracking under the pressure of it. And it hurts like hell. And then all of the artillery in this tank explodes. And you feel this force magic hit you like a train. Right before you are instantly killed by this 146 total damage that you have just taken, you feel your heart stop. And that's where we're going to end for this episode. Well, this has been interesting. We'll see what happens next. On Compelled Duel? Hey everybody, Barry here with the postscript, just clearing up a couple housekeeping things here at the end of the episode. Usual stuff first, you can find us on Twitter, Tumblr, and TikTok, at Compelled Duel, but we have a lot of other cool stuff in addition to our social medias. We have an official website, an official Spotify account, you can find all of that stuff linked on our various social media profiles. If you're interested in supporting the podcast, we ask that you consider heading on over to patreon.com slash compelled duel and looking at some of our patron benefits. Starting at just $2 a month, you can get access to all kinds of stuff, including early access to episodes, exclusive playlists, bonus content, and much more. If you want to support us in ways other than joining the Patreon, if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify, we'd really appreciate it if you would leave us a rating and a review. That helps grow the audience and get the show's name out there, so we really appreciate that. As we've said before, our posting schedule is going to be a little funky with us moving and getting Campaign 2 ready to roll out, so while we have gone away from our typical weekly update schedule, we're trying to keep you guys informed of when things are going to come out. In the case of our next bonus episode, The Battle of Omegroth Part 2 will actually be coming out on Friday, August 19th, 2022, at 9 a.m. Pacific Time. Or if you are a member of the Patreon tiers who previously did not have access to that bonus episode, you'll be getting early access to that on Thursday, August 18th. Thank you guys so much. We'll see you in two weeks.